project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hi, this is Meredith Nelson. Forgive the cold and Merry Christmas. Today I'm going to share an interview I did a couple weeks ago with Robin Birkinshaw. Robin is the secretary of her Stake Relief Society and a gay woman. She was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has always had a love of the gospel. When she left the church as a young adult and struggled deeply with depression, she felt a devastating distance between herself and God, believing herself to be unworthy of his blessings. Time, family, and tiny miracles led her back to the gospel, and after a 20-year hiatus, she returned to church in 2015. Robin's journey is her own. While her story may help LGBTQ people realize the love that God has for them, it is not a guide for their own lives or their relationship with the church. Robin is the CEO of BlitzPay, a financial technology startup. As a woman executive in the fintech industry, Robin is used to standing out and raising her voice for positive change. This interview is part of our Tales of Return series. Robin, why don't we just start? I'm just so thankful to have you here. Will you tell me a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, professionally, I am the CEO of a financial technology startup in uh, Utah County, soon not to be Utah County. Uh, we're moving from Lehigh to Draper to the other side of the mountain. And uh, it's a company called BlitzPay. It started late 2016, early 2017, and we're starting to catch some steam. So it's been a lot of fun to be a female fintech founder and to be involved in, you know, in technology as a woman and uh, specifically in Utah, specifically in Utah County in Utah and uh, make a little bit of a splash. So yeah, it's, it's been an incredible opportunity. I'm really, I'm really blessed and very grateful for all the, for all the things that have come my way. That's amazing. What, so can you briefly describe in layman's terms <laughs> what Blitz Pay is? <laughs> Sure. So BlitzPay is a, okay, ready? Here, this, is, this is where I put on my pitchy voice. Got it. Um, BlitzPay is a mobile, it's a mobile payment technology that allows businesses to invoice and collect via text message. So other than getting your water bill on the mail or getting your mortgage payment or your insurance, you get it via text message and you can pay right from your, right from your phone. Cool. So what's your, why did you create BlitzPay? What's your underlying vision there? Um, so it's evolved. BlitzPay has, has evolved pretty dramatically. Um, initially, I created it because paying bills is a pain. <laughs> and uh -huh. so I wanted an easier, I wanted an easier way to, to interact with, with merchants. And so BlitzPay was kind of born of the need to communicate and, and collect. So interaction that leads to transaction from consumers to their to their businesses technology has allowed us to get really impersonal you know in the means that we deal with one another and blitzpay is aiming to bring some of that back to center where businesses and merchants have the ability to interact on a personal level still efficiently uh securely with their customers and and make them feel more like people rather than cattle and mm -hmm there is an inclusion piece that has has materialized as the product has grown and developed blitz really came about during the crash 2000 i was i was in mortgage lending in 2008 mm -hmm. for many years up to 2008 and then the market crashed you may have heard and 
I was recruited by a law firm that was dealing with distressed consumers. And at that point in time, you know, middle America was a distressed consumer. Everybody was, was uh, underemployed or unemployed and underwater in real estate in their homes. Um, and that opportunity really gave me a clear vision of the silos that exist when people are scared and what happens to those communications when people need to be communicated to and with in, in that kind of a setting. And so Blitzpay was born of the need for paying bills, communicating with businesses to be convenient and fast and secure and easy to use. And there's an inclusion part that as the world goes cashless and digital, 21st century digital economy is very exclusive and does not have a, a piece of inclusion for people who are underbanked or unbanked, who oftentimes don't have don't have the same, you know, it's it's people who people who are immigrants. It's people who are trying to make ends meet and struggling and they don't have the opportunities to participate in the 21st century digital economy like people who fit in the banked box. And so Blitz is, has designed some platforms to allow everybody to participate and everyone to have those conveniences and uh, efficiencies and security. What's it like being a woman in Utah in fintech? <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> I'm, my guess is you, that's a loaded question because I would, <laughs> I would imagine you know some of the answer to that. Um, it's, it's different. There are a lot of male fintech leader. I'll say it like this. Fintech leadership in Utah specifically is, is predominantly male. And uh, it's been a challenge. I, you know, it's been a challenge in fundraising. It's been a challenge to be taken seriously. I've sat in meetings where, you know, my male counterpart is sitting, is sitting next to me and I'm answering questions that people are asking my male counterpart and engaging with him, but not looking at me. It's, mm. it's interesting. I've never seen, you know, in my entire career, I've never seen anything quite like, quite like it and dealing with capital markets and dealing with, um, with financial technology specifically has, has been a challenge as a female founder, but it's one that I absolutely thrive on. The fastest way to get me to do something is to tell me that I can't. Hmm. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like it's changing there for women in the FinTech field? No, I don't. I think in a lot of respects, I think, no, that's not true. I do feel like it's changing. I don't feel like it's changing at the pace that it needs to. And I think mm. in order for it to change, um, we are going to have to have a voice. People who care about it um, are going to have to stand up for what we believe in, and you know, kind of make ourselves heard because it's it's not gonna it's not gonna get handed to us. I'd like to hear a little bit about your upbringing. Were you raised in Utah? Were you raised in the church? Um, I was. I was born and raised in Midvale. I am the youngest of five siblings. Uh, the closest sibling to me was 16 <laughs> when I was born, oh, wow. and the oldest was, 
was 25. So I was the family, I, I was the family surprise over and over again, as they tell me. <laughs> um, so my mother, uh, my mother wrote, uh, my second to oldest brother, he was serving a mission in Brazil and said, oh, by the way, <laughs> when, when you get home from your mission, you're going to have a new baby sibling. Oh, wow. So it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty surprising to them. And then just as he got home, I had another, my other brother left for his uh, mission to serve in Japan. And uh, so I was surrounded by adults from a, from a very young age. I was uh, the uh, one to be supervised. I had five sets of parents telling me what to do <laughs> and how I should do it. Um, and all of my siblings were, were active more or less. My parents weren't, uh, were active before I was born. My mom, my mom was always fairly active before I was born and my dad never really, but more or less I was raised, I was raised in the church. Mm -hmm. So, and at some point, I understand you were not active. When did that, what, what was your journey like from when you were young? What was your journey in the church? So it was a little bit of a, of a dichotomy. I was always, there was always a feeling of spirituality, but I never really related it to the church or to church activity. Mm. My family, you know, I have, um, I have roots that I think anchored me in the church even before I was born. Um, and, and I won't say the church, I'll say in the gospel, uh, mm. because it, sometimes that can be, there can be a little bit of a difference there. I always had a love of the gospel. I always had a love uh, of my savior. And I think at some point I felt like I had to choose between the two that the gospel and the church were so intertwined that if I was choosing out, then I was choosing out from all of it. Hmm. And so I think that was in my early life. I think that was, um, that was a, a real challenge for me. I struggled. I left, I'd say I, I, I left the church probably in my early twenties, maybe 21, 22. And I had always known that there was something that was different about me. Recognizing I was gay came a little later because I didn't really have a context. I'd never grown up around anybody that was, that was gay or that had um, that proclivity. And, and so I didn't understand. I think everybody knew I was gay, but me. <laughs> Hmm. So that wasn't a piece of your leaving the church. Um, it wasn't at the time it became a piece later because again, I, I think I, I think that at the, at that time in the church, it was so, it was so different that I didn't believe that I could have the savior in my life and I could have the gospel in my life if I was gay. And so hmm. I went really, really far really far the other direction, trying to find me and trying to, you know, figure out who I was and, and what direction I was going. And it was, it was tough. My family struggled with it. Um, my family struggled with it quite a bit uh, to this. My mother passed away a couple of years ago, but to her dying day, I think she would tell you that, that I wasn't gay, that it was a phase. <laughs> oh, <laughs> How did they respond to your inactivity in the church? Oh, that was that was tough. Um, that was tough for them. I think they were worried. They were worried about my 
well-being and my safety and my um my choices and and it was really tough my mom uh my mom specifically had a had a really difficult time and i think you know i think they feared for my eternal well-being and i don't want to speak too far out of turn but from what from what my perception was they viewed it as a choice that i had made rather than who i was part of than part of who i was and i think you know over the last 20 25 years we have gained a lot of insight and information about what it's like to be uh what it's like to be gay and what it's like to have have that proclivity and that difference and i think my family at the time felt like i was just going through some wild phase and that was that was a decision that i made and that was really hard to that was really hard to try and explain and to these are people that I loved and, and respected and I wanted them to understand, but I didn't have the words to articulate it. Were you able to maintain those relationships even through that, you know, that difficult time of misunderstanding? Um, no, they tried. Um, they tried on, you know, a number of different occasions. One One of my siblings still isn't, I still don't think has quite wrapped her head around my journey and, and where it's gone. And she's kind of, she's kind of put some distance there, but my brothers really did their best. And my parents, you know, did their best to to understand and be supportive where they could. What about your relationship with God during the time that you, you found out you were, or I, I don't know how to put it. You realized that you were gay. Yeah, realized you yeah. weren't, active in the church anymore that you'd been raised in, you were more isolated from some of your family members. What was your relationship with God like during that time? Devastatingly distant. I didn't believe, and and I think if there's anything that I can communicate in this, um, it's that, that this is not the case, but for years and years and years, I believed that I was... I othered myself. I was different enough that I didn't have the right to have a relationship with God. And interestingly, he kept reaching. He kept reaching and reaching and reaching. And I just didn't, I just didn't see it. I think I was so convinced that I was less than, or I was not deserving of his love and of his blessing of his blessings that I, I distanced myself there as well. What are the ways that that you now see that he was reaching to you? Oh man. When I was 23, 24, I had broken up with my first, with my first partner. I was just devastatingly rooted in the fact that I was going to lose my family. I was going to lose my faith. I was going to lose everything and so she she had had enough of my of my closet case and it it was really it was really a tough time so I told my I told my family so I guess I was probably 23 I told my family that I was gay and they didn't take it very well and I was um, battling a depression that I couldn't that I couldn't lift myself out from um I it just just even to think back to that time, it just, it feels like a fog. 
And so I had a pretty serious suicide attempt. I, um, I had had, I had had enough and I was found by a friend and he had just felt impressed to leave work and come and check on me. And, uh, doors were locked and he climbed in the back window of my house and found me unconscious. Mm. And to make a long story short, he got my parents and called 911 and I had stopped breathing. And, uh, as they were getting ready to load me up into the ambulance and take room, um, my parents' home teacher and our bishop at the time was driving by and saw the commotion and stopped and followed the ambulance to the hospital. And a couple of weeks ago, I found a letter that my former bishop, who I'm actually close to now and was have been close to my entire life, um, wrote. It was it was basically him jotting down notes. Um, of the blessing that he gave me while I was unconscious in the emergency room and they were waiting to see whether or not I was, I was going to live. And at that point they didn't have great hope that if I did survive, that I was going to be, that I was going to be at full capacity. And so um, that's one of the ways that heavenly father, you know, he, he was able to Mm. see the future and he was able to see past the darkness of a struggling you know, a struggle, a young struggling girl that didn't know which direction was up. And in the blessing um, that was given to me, I was commanded to, my, my spirit was commanded to return to my body. And I was told that Heavenly Father had a great work for me to do in my life and that I would be a tool in his hands to lift and build and strengthen uh, people who had less faith and who needed to see that the words were needed to see a light at the end of a dark path and um so that was one of the that was one of the ways um there were always people around that um were there to support and sustain me as i walked as i walked my path and as i walked my journey and i recovered from that and heavenly father continued to reach i it was always very difficult for me internally because I felt a pull back to the church, but I couldn't, and I won't even say back to the church. I, I felt a pull to the gospel. I felt a pull to uh, my heavenly father. And I think some of that was, was probably from the other side. I think some of that was grandparents and I had a sibling that passed away and aunts and people who were, who were always there to make sure that I, I didn't go too far, um, over the, over the side that I couldn't be brought back. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Robin. So what was, what was your light at the end of the dark tunnel? What, what was it that finally led you back? Yeah, there were, um, there were a number of things. So in, oh, when was it? 2000, I guess it was in 2008, 2009, when the market crashed. Um, I was in a position where I was looking for, I was looking for work and work was pretty scarce. And an opportunity materialized that 
couldn't have been anything but the work in the hand, but the hand of God in my life. And from that point, probably 2009, 2010, I made a commitment to start paying my tithing. And it was a little strange to be, you know, in the position that I was in and, and in, I was in a, I was in a relationship at the time, but to pay, you know, to be paying my tithing, but I just felt that heavenly father had blessed me so abundantly that, um, I needed to reach out. And then 2013, Christmas of 2013, day after Christmas, my dad hadn't been feeling well for a couple of days and had, had really kind of declined. Uh, he was in his eighties and had declined pretty, pretty significantly. Um, Christmas day, he wouldn't let me take him to the doctor. We took him to the doctor the day after Christmas. And the day after that, I believe was on a, was on a Wednesday. We took him in on Thursday and Friday morning. We found out that he had acute myeloid leukemia Mm. with just a very, very short period of time to live. And it was devastating to me. Um, I didn't always have a great relationship with my parents and I didn't have a relationship uh, with him that was very, that was very good. And it was, it was like, um, it was like the door had closed and the door was closing. And so he passed away. um, He passed away the night of New Year's Eve. Um, about about eleven, about a, just after, just shortly after eleven p.m. on New Year's Eve, and my brother had flown in from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where he was living at the time, and there was a piece to him that I didn't have. He had, he had an understanding, and I understood it, but I don't think I had a testimony of it. I think the fear overwhelmed me, and to watch the difference between. Uh, between my brother and his reaction and response to my dad's passing and the difference between the rough tide that was just raging in me um, was, was pretty significant. My mom had been diagnosed uh, as having dementia and was, was pretty, was pretty uh, out of it. She didn't have a lot of, of comprehension as to what was going on. And so my dad was kind of the last for me he was the last anchor that I had to my parents as, you know, I'm the baby. And that was, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. And so I think that started the serious journey. And so um, over the course of the next year, we had to put my mom in an assisted living facility. She was, she wasn't able to care for herself. And sell the family home and all of these things. I'm a pretty, I'm pretty sentimental by nature. And and so to watch some of those things unfold was pretty tough to watch my mom take her uh, last steps out of the home that she had lived in the majority of her married life and all of my life was, was devastating. And so it was a pretty rocky year for me. We began to prepare the home for sale and I was going through uh, some documents that my mother, uh, my mother, like many in that generation, believed in saving everything. And so there was, um, there were a couple of boxes for each of the for each of the children that had all of their all of their school stuff from, you know, from kindergarten on. So started going through some of that, and I found a letter 
um, I found a letter that she had written in 1960, 1962 or 1963. And it was very clearly for me so I'll read it if you if you'd like to hear it yeah so I'll give you a little bit of background my mom and dad were not sealed were not married in the temple and had a pretty had had some had some struggles in their marriage and some struggles um each personally and so weren't ever super active and so about 18 months before my dad passed away they were sealed in the temple they were they went through and were both endowed and were were sealed and all of my siblings were able to participate but me and i very literally stood outside the doors of the temple and waited for waited for you know for that experience to go and i was pretty upset i had a lot of i had a lot of emotions and i had a lot of feelings about you know them being sealed and the whole kind of the whole nine yards and so when I found this letter specifically, it was it was pretty interesting. So my mother hadn't wasn't married in the temple, um, but her mother, my grandma Bateman, was very very active, and my mother loved and revered her mother just like uh, all of my siblings. I never met my grandma Bateman; she she passed away before I was born. But this letter is about her. And my mother wrote, "One night I stood outside the temple gates and waited for mother." who was inside. I waited quite a time, and in those moments, I saw and pondered many things. I looked upon the solid stately walls which separate Temple Square and set it apart from the world, then upward to the lighted spires and upward until my eyes rested upon the grandest pinnacle, atop which stood the glorious likeness of the angel. Above, the sky was black in contrast, filled with glimmering stars. Upon the street were many hurried footsteps, couples, arms entwined or holding hands, walked forth in eagerness, faces alight with purpose to enter and be welcomed through the gate. Groups of every age, hurrying, intent on the joyous task at hand, poured through the gate. A bride carrying a bouffant wedding dress, careful lest it be crushed, made her exit from those doors. The realization of her dreams written upon her face, her husband beside her, their parents close at hand, Young and old, I thought, here are the faithful. Then I saw my own dear mother approach. Her face alight with inspiration she had felt within those walls of the worthwhile accomplished, void up and generated by covenants renewed, eyes shining from the burning of the spirit within. Out the heavy door she came, down the path to the outside world, carrying the essence of heaven with her. I was alone. I alone had waited outside that night. With the waiting, the seeing, the feeling came a clear realization of how my own choice had placed me there. Of how those years ago, I thought that love could win the desires of my heart and soul without a doubt. Now only God could know the yearning of my heart. My love of husband even stronger now, and with four children, Mark and Laurie, ours to love and guide, I knew the truth, true love, cannot be filled that does not encompass the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then to dinner with mother, for whom I had waited, to sit about the table and hear her conversation, feel the strength she had derived from her loving service for the dead, see the emotion and almost into the souls of the family who had been sealed that very night, 
12 years have passed since my wedding day, years of hope, faith, love, learning, and a vast multitude of experiences. And yet how long the journey and how steep the pathway, I did not know. Onward then with tools of love and understanding to strive and yearn with faith to qualify with the one I love for eternal life. If I could leave one message for my children, it would be this. Never make a choice in life that leaves you waiting outside the house of God. For if you do, it may be you will find yourself and those you love outside through eternity. Nothing in the world could compensate for the loss of this, the greatest of all blessings. And so with that direction, um, it took me, it took me some time to process. It took me some time to think through at a time where my mother didn't have the capacity to deliver that message to me, Heavenly Father made a way. And that was my call to, that was my call to come home. Wow, what an amazing story. What was your journey back? How did you take those steps? Um, so my first step was, um, I think talking myself into it. <laughs> I hadn't stepped mm-hmm. foot in the church for, for over 20 years and that was a pretty daunting experience. And so it took me until January, um, January of 2015. And one Sunday I gathered, <laughs> I gathered my strength and found the, uh, one skirt that I owned in the back of the closet that um, that I hadn't even thought about for years. And I traipsed myself to sacrament meeting and I was terrified. And I walked in the doors and sat in the back. It was fast and testimony meeting. It was the first, first Sunday back in January. And I sat in the back kind of hiding in the corner, hoping that nobody, <laughs> nobody would see or notice me. And, um, during fast and testimony meeting, I felt compelled to bear my testimony about the plan of salvation and the fact that I didn't know anything about anything, but I was grateful that Heavenly Father had had instituted a way for us to be together. And from there, I all but ran <laughs> to the door. Okay, gotta go. <laughs> and was, was mobbed by... Um, members of that ward that wanted to know who I was and what I was and why, where was I going and why was I going so quickly? So it took me a couple of months of going to really commit before, you know, years in years past, I had investigated other religions and tried to find that peace and it didn't exist, at least for me. And I think that's one of the things that I want to make really clear in this in this interview is that my story is very different than everybody else's. My path is very different. And one thing I don't want to happen is for my story to be used as a weapon against others who are struggling with some of the same challenges. Mm -hmm. My path is my path and my path alone. And it doesn't represent it doesn't represent the same choices and the same challenges or opportunities that others, that others face. And I think 
to try and lump things into a box to wrap our head around it. And we try and um, look at things inside the box, check the box to fix those things. And people are people. Everybody has their own path and their own opportunity to learn and to grow in a way that is designed specifically for them. The atonement was focused by our Savior and our Heavenly Father on the individual. He atoned for each one of us personally and individually, and he knows our path, and he he doesn't compare our path to anybody else, even if the challenges are similar. And I want to make sure that that is communicated clearly that this is not for everyone. Thank you for stating that with such clarity. I think that's really important. So Robin, what teachings of the church resonate most deeply with you? What really drew you back? Yeah, there are a couple of things um, that really that really spoke to me. Um, Elder Holland has a special place in my heart. He, it feels like every time he talks, he is talking specifically to me. And there are a couple of things. Um, my brother sent me sent me a link to Elder Holland's talk. Remember Lot's wife, faith is for the future. And this was actually a couple of, this was probably a year and a half. It was right after my dad died. But before my path started, started back toward church and that resonated with me, that faith looks forward, that we take the embers, not the ashes from our past and we are able to grow from those. And he talks about the future that's yet to come and the forgiveness that can be, that can be wrought from that. And that gave me hope that gave me a hope and a sense of belonging that I uh, really needed and hadn't had. I think it started to clarify for me that I was worthy and had the opportunity to, to find God, even though I was different, even though I wasn't um, maybe what you would consider um, the storybook, you know, the storybook member of the church. And so that was significant to me. And then there was, there was another talk that I found by Brad Wilcox called His Grace is Sufficient. And in that, he talks about the art of playing the piano and how essentially we are beginning piano players. And as we go through life's experiences, we're going to hit wrong keys. But it doesn't mean that we are not to be piano players. It means that we're learning. And that resonated with me as well. And what teachings of the church are challenging for you? Yeah, so the night before I was endowed, my family had flown in town and uh, my mother had just passed away. My mom, my mom passed away uh, September 6th and November 6th. I was preparing to be endowed. And November 5th, uh, 2015, the church... Mm announced the changes to handbook one mm-hmm. that would take place that would that would prevent uh children of same-sex couples from being both blessed and then baptized and as i crawled into bed to read the news as as is kind of my custom uh to to see that news was a kick in the gut to me i mean literally not 12 hours before i was before i was to be endowed and I 
uh, waited and I thought, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. This isn't, I, I can't, I can't join something that is that exclusionary and not only exclusionary to people who have, have made a choice, but to the children of people who have made that choice. And that was very, very difficult and very painful for me. Mm-hmm. And so that was a struggle. Um, I ended up obviously being endowed, um, but being endowed with the with the goal to raise my voice for whatever that was worth to be uh, a voice for change and a voice for temperance and a voice for kindness and inclusion and change, change within the church that everybody is welcome um, and that everyone deserves the love of God and, and the blessings of the atonement and the recognition of his hand in each one of our lives. So that one's been tough for me. The sociology of the church, I think is changing, but there are still some, there are still some tough challenges that weigh on me. There are conference talks that are given across the pulpit that are sometimes painful. I've gotten to the point where I don't listen to conference live. I listen to it after the fact. And I've got, um, I've got, guards, <laughs> guards around me, I guess I could say. Um, I've got just amazing, supportive people that kind of give me the guidance of what to listen to and what to stay away from. And I think it's not the doctrine. I think it's the way that the doctrine is delivered. I think it's the different opinions within the church. We are a church of, of lay leaders and imperfect lay leaders and imperfectly leaders with opinions and experiences and differences. And that can be, that can be challenging. There was a time just after I was, just after I was endowed that uh, I was sitting in Relief Society and nobody really knew my background. Nobody knew that I was gay. Nobody knew, you know, there, there were a very, there are very, very select few. I think my bishop and and his counselors and maybe one other person, and that was it. And so I'm sitting in Relief Society, and the lesson is feed my sheep. And the lesson on feed my sheep, because of the the conversation and and the derision that the changes to book one caused, everybody had something to say, but there wasn't a really good forum in which to say it. And so it came out in these really weird ways, like in relief society. So we're in relief society. We're having a lesson about feed my sheep and feed my sheep turns into, should I feed the gay sheep? And there were a couple of sisters that started going back and forth about whether they should support family members and attend um, weddings and baby blessings and whatever of gay, gay members of their family or, or gay friends that, that, uh, that they had known. And I sat uh, kind of white knuckled in my seat, not sharing, not not sure what to share and what not to share, and and I just sat there silent. And I walked out. Um, Sorry, I have a dog that <laughs> that needs to be removed. Come here, buddy. So okay. I walked. Uh, I walked out. Um, pretty upset with myself that I had stayed quiet because I'm not much for being quiet, but I wasn't sure what to say. And so I had been Mm -hmm. called that year as a Relief Society teacher. 
happens to be teaching that next week and the lesson happens to be faith is not by chance but by choice and i shared my story hmm. and you could have heard a pin drop i read the letter from my mother and i talked about very specifically if you had known that i was gay would the conversation have been different would you have thought that i would have returned would you think that you know does it change your opinion of me does heavenly father want us to feed just the sheep that look like us and that talk like us and then talked a little bit about you know the savior's life and and who he was and so that was a wake-up call to me and there's always people that say things that i don't think mean harm but i don't think they think I don't think they think through completely what they're saying and who may be in the room that may be affected by that. Um, conversations about uh, the proclamation on the family, conversations about, you know, priesthood ordinances and, and you can go back into history and you can, you know, you can dig into some things that are, that are relatively, that are relatively controversial and can be seen as hurtful. But the truth, at least for me, has been my faith is not by chance, but by choice. And I choose to believe in, in the gospel and believe that Heavenly Father will sort it all out eventually. That I don't have to carry the weight on my shoulders. And not that that involves me of a responsibility to be a voice for change and to speak up when I see something that's wrong. But that I don't have to to feel responsible to change everything in a finite period of time, that he is aware of us and aware of the things that are happening and, and blesses us accordingly. That's beautiful. And I think a really compassionate view of <laughs> the people who surround you in the church um, and the leadership of the church too. I think it must be some, some kind of a burden to be a gay member of the church and maybe feel like there is a responsibility to be the one that speaks up and that, and that represents and that explains. Does that become tiring? I wouldn't say tiring. I would say I want, I want to make sure that I deliver it in a way that's, that's loving and that's appropriate and that's kind because there's our, there, we don't need any more division. We need unity. It's, I think it's overwhelming at times. I, I think it, it's uh, filled with the ability to feel insecure about being able to deliver that message. I think of Moses when he was called to not, and not that I am anywhere comparing myself to Moses, but I think of, you know, people who have been called to duties and to responsibilities that, they don't know how on earth they're going to fulfill. And that's, it's scary a little bit. It can be challenging and it can be overwhelming that Heavenly Father would allow me to share my voice and my experiences. And, and am I, am I the right person for that? Do you serve in a calling right now in your ward? I do. I am the secretary in the Stake Relief Society. It's, and it's been, it's been an incredible, it's been an incredible opportunity when they called me in to offer me the calling, I thought I was in trouble for, and so much to my surprise, I found out that uh, they were going to call me, going to call me to the stake. And I think that speaks volumes to the change that's happening.
Mm-hmm. Um, my ward, my stake is incredible. And our Relief Society, our Stake Relief Society president is one of the most gifted, kind, loving people that you could ever you could ever ask for so to be called to serve with her has been has been phenomenal but you know there aren't many lesbian members of the stake relief society presidency yeah. so so yeah. it's been pretty cool i'm going to ask just because that's my same calling um what do you feel like what do you feel like your purpose is in that calling so i think especially now and I don't know if it's just more visible now than it has been in the past, but I think now there are there are a lot of feeling in the church about is this the place that I should be, and is this uh, you know am I doing the right thing? And there are a lot of people that left over the changes to Handbook One and what have you. And I think if anything, it's that change is possible, and that people are trying, and that the only way that change will happen is if people are willing to stay and do the hard work and raise their voice. What message do you have for other LGBTQ people who wish to be or remain active members of the church? Um, you have your path to walk and only you know what direction that path will take. Um, very very clearly, I want to articulate that Heavenly Father, whether you're an active member of the church or not, Heavenly Father loves each one of us individually. He knows us individually. He knows us intimately. And it doesn't change based on your sexual preference or your ethnicity or your religious uh, beliefs or your standing in the community or your job or any of those things that, that we sometimes look at ourselves and judge ourselves um, in accordance with. If you want to be a disciple of the savior, there are two great commandments. Number one is love God. And number two is love your neighbor. And I think we stack a lot of other stuff on top of that. And it's time to get back to basics. It's time to get really clear about who we are and what's important to us and what we're doing and how that impacts the world and the people around us. And anything else is just a lot of noise. So last question, you talked about how there was a time in your life where you felt really distant from God and like maybe unworthy of, of God's blessings. What is your relationship now with God? Gratitude. I, I try really hard to pay attention to his hand in my life and it's daily. There are so many opportunities that he puts before me and before all of us, things that are just little teeny or things that are large and miraculous, but he's there. He's there in the details. I would say I'm learning to trust him. I'm learning to trust. I think it's it's a combination of remembrance, remembering the times that, you know, he picked me up on my road to Damascus and and sent me on my way. There are two things that come to my mind often. The first is the story of Peter just after the Savior was crucified and 
Peter went back to fishing. I'm sure unsure of what to do going forward and scared and all of the emotions that those early that those early disciples felt. And the Savior asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter answers, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And three times in repetition, I think in very deliberate proximity to what to what Peter's denial of the Savior was. And he came back and asked three times and wanted to make sure that Peter knew what he was saying and that I think it was almost a testament to Peter as well as it was to the Savior. And then the second thing, the second story of the Savior, then there are, there are a number of, sto- number of stories about the Savior that I try and keep in my head. But the next one is Jesus asking his disciples, will ye also leave? And the response is, to whom shall we go? Thou has the words of eternal life. And that's the truth. For me, the only option, the only place that I have to go is to the Savior and to our Father in Heaven, because He knows. He knows me, and He knows what I need to be the person that I want to be and that He knows that I can be. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.